Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we're going to talk to historian Patricia Gentile about her newly released book on the history of beauty contests in Canada. Pat is an associate professor of human rights, social justice, and gender studies at Carleton University with a cross appointment to the Department of History. She is a co-author of the Canadian War on Queer, National Security as Sexual Regulation, published by UBC Press in 2010. Today, we are going to interview her on her newest book, Queen of the Maple Leaf, Beauty Contests and Settler Femininity, published by UBC Press in 2020. Pat, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Greg, for this wonderful invitation. Well, I was intrigued by the very neat title of your book, Queen of the Maple Leaf. Was there really a Queen of the Maple Leaf? And why did you choose this as your title? The scholarship on um, beauty contests is quite extensive. uh, And a lot of that research is uh, focused on uh, U.S. beauty pageants. And of course, most of us know the most popular uh, and really internationally renowned um, beauty contest is, is the Miss America contest. So when I was embarking on this research, I decided that I needed to uh, find a title that A, conveyed the idea that this w- book was about Canadian beauty contests, but of course, again, also emphasizing the, the question of uh, pageantry. Um, and so that's, that's how I came up with the title Queen of the Maple Leaf. Well, it's a great, great title. Now, let me ask you about your subtitle. What do you mean by settler femininity? Yes, and this this uh, the subtitle was uh, for me the the believe it or not the more important part of this title because that word of settler femininity is the the fulcrum of this entire uh, research. One of the things that uh, people who do beauty pageant um, scholarship um, emphasize is women's bodies and particularly representations of gender and how they help to symbolize nation. And believe it or not, there's an extensive scholarship on beauty contests and and beauty pageants uh, from really every part of the world. And what I noticed in that scholarship was that most people, uh, most scholars, I should say, emphasized um, the representation of women as nation. And so they were that scholarship really does focus on contesting bodies, especially women's bodies, and and how we see them as representation of nation. But they didn't seem to really take up the question of contesting nation. And although you might think that just as you use women's bodies to represent nation, that that does that double contestation. But in fact, that I I didn't feel that that was really. Uh, what was happening. So I wanted to think about this research through the lens of a, um, you know, colonialism, um, imperialism, and whiteness um, as sort of the bases of nationalism as and, and the coding and value of nationalism, especially in, in a settler nation like Canada. And one way to do that was to use my theoretical or historical lens to this research through the word or through the concept of settler femininity. 
And so secular femininity is really a way for me to shorthand um, what I think is really happening, you know, historically and also in the contemporary period around beauty pageants. And that beauty pageants are not these frivolous, you know, banal, you know, events that happen that are just about entertainment and spectatorship, although, of course, there's elements of that. What they are, because they exemplify subtler femininity, whereas, which is the contestation of female bodies as well as nation, is that they're these important tools of uh, civilizing lo logic. So what I mean by civilizing logic is that we use beauty contests as yet another venue in terms of our, our understanding of nationalism to continue to discipline bodies in terms of race, gender, uh, and, and sexuality in particular, right? And so cellular femininity is my shorthand to try to capture not just the idea that women were used to represent nation, but that those conceptions of femininity that come out of beauty pageants are really about the codes of continuing colonialism, continuing ideas of whiteness, continuing ideas of patriarchy and heterosexuality. So that's what, what why the subtitle beauty, you know, beauty contest and 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 settler femininity. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and I would have thought that the that you were fairly limited in terms of your documentary sources, and yet uh, you managed to find a great deal. So can you tell us what your documentary sources for this history of beauty contests uh, were and uh, how you found them in the first place? Um, I love this question, um, Greg, because it really allows me to, to uh, introduce something I think that um, is really important for, for our, our listeners to, to internalize. And that is whether we uh, know this or not, or whether we take it for granted, beauty contests are ubiquitous. They really are everywhere. And one of the things, once I actually started to do the research on beauty contests or decided that this is a topic that I wanted to, to, to dwell into, I realized that there is actually no way for me to write any kind of extensive work on beauty contests. So, so if there's anybody out there who wants to do research on beauty contests, there's endless supply of ways or, 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 or research uh, to, to access. And so, you know, um, you know, despite what we might think, because of that ubiquitousness, I actually did find a lot of uh, archival research, um, you know, not just through the form of newspaper clippings, but also in terms of archival documents um, in, in the archives. It's just that you have to be creative, right? There's no box at the archives that says beauty contest slash Canada in the way that, you know, historians <laughs> uh, would love to have boxes like that that exist. You know, you have to, you have to be creative in the sense that, you know, it, it, once I found out through the newspaper searchers that there was the suggestion of maybe a, a, a Miss Centennial then I would look up documents in the archives on the Centennial Commission, and then and then I would just get files on um, discussions about, say, Miss Centennial. Um, that's an example, and and that's also, for, by the way, where I got archival information about Indian Princess, which is one of the beauty contests that I I focus on in the book. 
Um, the other big, really, source of, of information was uh, the CTV Broadcasting Company. And, you know, they have uh, all the videotape of the Miss Canada pageant. But interestingly, Greg, their, their videotapes, which, which were all VCR, uh, were literally in a broom closet. And so when I called them up and say, look, I'm doing this research. Do you have these videotaping somewhere? I thought I would get something that looks more like what we deal with today, you know, digitized. And, you know, instead they, they said, yeah, well, why don't you come over to Toronto, come to our buildings and we'll show you where they are. And they were in a broom closet. And I, you know, they gave me the boxes and I sat at a, at a VCR. Um, newsletters from community organizations uh, was another way for me to get access to sources. Again, because you know, beauty contests were run by rural communities, unions, they were run by police associations. And so as long as I had the time and the money, because of, you know, research money to go to different places to, to um, delve into people's archives and whatever that looked like, it could have just been ephemera, like photographs, um, then that meant really an endless supply of research on beauty contests and, and, and why I encourage you know, especially if there are students listening to to this podcast, to go out and do research on beauty contests. It's, it's just endless. Well, in fact, there are so many beauty contests that uh, you mentioned. I had no idea of the, of yes. the sheer range of them. Uh, how did you select the uh, the particular ones that you focused on in this book? Again, it was a hard choice. Uh, while I was uncovering the different beauty contests that exist and that are really all over the place, um, I realized that there is this entire uh, source of, of information on children's beauty contests. And I realized, you know, you could write a whole book just on, on children's beauty contests. So, um, and, 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 you know, one of the contests that I don't focus on in the, in the book that really still needs to, a whole history to be written on is the Miss Teen Canada, which I, I delegated to children's uh, uh, beauty contests. So I, I uncovered quite a bit of archival information on, on beauty con for children's beauty contests, but I had to choose not um, <laughs> to use that information, uh, despite the fact that it would have really added yet another dimension to, to this book. Um, uh, so, right. And so what I did decide though, of course, is, you know, partly I chose beauty contests where I didn't have to travel to every corner of our country <laughs> to find archival information. So the, 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 the information I did have at my fingertips in terms of newspapers and archival sources was partly what helped define or helped me choose uh, which Buyu contests I would I would focus on. For example, there happened to be um, a manuscript record file uh, on Miss Malta, which is why I focus on Miss Malta in in the book, right? So it was readily available and an example of immigrant um, beauty contests. But the other reason, you know, the other contests I I focus on, for instance, the Miss Canada pageant, um, the Miss War Worker pageant. Uh, Indian Princess, um, uh, Miss Black Ontario, or Miss University, which was a, a contest uh, that was run by by universities all over our country, which is not in, in this book, but it's a, another uh, part of the research I did. Uh, I, I chose beauty contests that I thought would help me speak to the institutionalization of settler femininity through the vehicle of beauty pageants in, in really... 
you know, stark ways. And I think that examples like Miss Canada or Indian Princess or Miss Black Ontario or Miss Worker uh, or La Reine des Midinettes, the Queen of the Dressmakers, were all sorts of those kinds of beauty contests that are institutionalized forms of settler femininity that would help me uh, really illustrate my argument around settler femininity and, and the contestation of bodies and nation through the beauty pageant model. Um, and so that's, that's how I made those decisions. Well, Pat, let's uh, talk about the one of the the largest, perhaps the largest patent, which was the Miss Canada pageant. Mm -hmm. Can you just summarize the history of this particular pageant for us, just in a couple of minutes? Sure. <laughs> uh, yes, because I could go on and on about, about Miss Miss Canada. I think one thing we all really need to uh, remember that you know. The, the the institution of Miss Canada doesn't have the same kind of history as the Miss America uh, pageant. And, you know, technically speaking, the Miss Canada pageant title as a, a trademark starts in 1946. However, in the book, I go back to 1923 as really the first time where we see a concerted, orchestrated uh, uh, effort to put together a beauty contest that included women from different regions of our country coming together under the banner of Miss Canada, whether that particular banner was trademarked or not, okay? So because beauty contests are business ventures, you know, they're not just these, uh, especially when we're talking, and, and, and really... Uh, it, it, at different levels, right? But especially when we're talking about like Miss America or Miss Canada, uh, that idea of the trademark is really important. So while the, um, you know, institutionalization starts as, as early as 1946, I start in the book uh, with 1923. And in 1923, Montreal... Um, uh, we have the first Miss Canada pageant in, in Montreal, and it really is part of Montreal's, uh, the business community in Montreal and the fraternal, uh, you know, the fraternities, the sort of the, the men's clubs in Montreal decide to come together and and put together a beauty contest under the banner of Miss Canada as part of the carnival festivities that has a long history, actually, in the context of Montreal. It goes back to the turn of the 20th century. Um, however, we're talking about 1923. Remember, everyone, that by in 1921, we have the first Miss America pageant, and so which is also organized by uh, the, the Business uh, you know, Chamber of Commerce um, Association in Atlantic City, again, in order to get people, tourists, to come at the end of, of the Labor Day weekend to spend more money in Atlantic City. Um, that's the same sort of... Uh, drive behind the 1923 Miss Canada pageant. And so that's the first real time, a uh, real moment in history where we see the Miss Canada pageant uh, or the Miss Canada title used. And of course, the person who wins in 1923 is Winifred Blair. Well, when did it become a national institution from this yeah. beginning in Montreal? You know, from 1923, I was going to say from 1923, basically to 1946, it's not to say that there weren't Miss Canada pageants, but 
you know, they're, they're, they're not necessarily consistently in an annual situation because it's not organized under uh, a trademark and it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't get marked up as a business yet. So really that takes us to 1946. In 1946, uh, the Weavers from Hamilton, Ontario, uh, basically trademarked the Miss Canada pageant um, uh, title. And as a result, we start to have really the kind of beauty contest that we might understand as Miss, Ma- Miss Canada pageant uh, starts at that moment. So 1946. From 1946 to 1962, where when the Weavers sell the title to Tom Reynolds and, and Walter Pascoe, who are both part of sort of television and, and talent associations and, and managerial uh, companies. Um, from 46 to, to 62, you know, it, it, the Miss Canada pageant is really associated with the Miss America pageant, right? The winner of the Miss Canada pageant gets sent to compete in Miss America. So, so there's this networking between the Miss America and Miss Canada pageant between the, that 1946 to 1962. Yes, it's a national institutionalized contest here in Canada, but it doesn't have the same kind of, um, uh, you know, outreach because it's not televised. What happens in 1963, and this is the important part, is that once it changes hands to Walter Pascoe and Tom Reynolds, they, and they begin to televise Miss, the Miss Canada pageant uh, in 1963, then we have the popularity and really the, ins- the cultural institutionalization of the Miss Canada pageant in our country, and of course that that ends in in in, in 1992. But but um, that's really sort of uh, explanation of the history of Miss Canada pageant. You introduce a great term, pageant paradox, to describe the obvious display of the feminine figure on the one hand that all these contests involved, and then on the other hand, the insistence on the part of pageant officials to vehemently deny that their pageant. Uh, was in fact not a beauty contest. Please explain this to me. Greg, that, that term that I use in the book was supposed to be uh, originally part of the title of the book, but I decided um, to simplify it a little bit more. Um, so yes, thank you for this opportunity to talk about this particular term that I that I use in the in the book, because this term is really part of helping to understand that civilizing, disciplining, um, you know, process that happens around, you know, subtler femininity in many ways. The pageant paradox was my way to describe, or is is my way to describe the fact that the person who becomes a beauty queen, the person who who wins the beauty queen or who 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 ends up victorious, who is victorious in, in a context contest, is supposed to exemplify, you know, uh, the beautiful, sexy kind of woman. Uh, but at the same time, if, if that was the image we wanted to sell of nation, uh, it wouldn't work, right? It, 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 we, we have to have uh, an ideal of uh, the woman who, who represents Canada or whatever beauty contest we're talking about that isn't just about this sort of like sexual excess, right? And so the pageant paradox was this situation for for organizers in particular in, in particular where they knew they had to 
sell and uh, the 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 body of beauty queens in terms of entertaining entertainment and 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 the spectacle of of the beauty queen uh, and especially her body you know uh, in terms of display of of women's bodies but at the same time they also knew that in order to have someone uh, really represent the country that has to be someone who was seen as respectable so the the respectable this idea of respectability was entrenched in the codes of whiteness and class and 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 hetero, hetero uh, sexuality and patriarchy so you would see in the in the archives and the documents that I looked at that organizers kept talking about the fact that what what the beauty contest that they were organizing was not a beauty contest, that this is not a beauty contest. And and that's the paradox, that on the one hand, they wanted to, in a sense, exploit women's bodies as representation of settler femininity and nation and, na- and settler nationalism. Uh, and one way to do that is through uh, exploiting the idea of sexiness and, and sensuality, at the same time, they also knew that that wouldn't work. So they had to have someone who was also uh, primarily a respectable image of of a female uh, and, and nation. So that's what the pageant paradox is, that on the one hand, they have this venue that's about sensuality. And on the other hand, in order for it to actually be the institution it's supposed to be around, you know, white settler nationalism, they had to have someone who was respectful. Well, thank you. And and I, I note, Pat, as well, you uh, described very well how various women's movements in Canada were hostile to beauty pageants all, almost from the beginning. And I was quite intrigued by Agnes Lynn Smith, the president of the Ontario chapter of the National Council of Women of Canada, who wrote a letter to the Attorney General of Ontario in 1927 stating, and I quote, I have been asked to write you regarding this matter of beauty contests and to find out if anything can be done to ban them from Ontario. Is this a municipal or a provincial or perhaps a federal issue? The women, I feel sure, anxious to attack this problem uh, in the proper way and will be glad of your advice. End of quote. So why did they call for the banning of such contests and what was their attitude towards the women who actually participated in these contests? Well, this is actually a really, um, and as far as I'm concerned, an important part of the book. And, and, I, and I wanted to preface this at my, my response by saying that really I don't take the position that beauty contests are good or bad because that's not what scholars do. We're not interested in these sort of... Um, extreme ideas of, 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 you know, the subjects that we, we, um, uh, you know, are interested in or are, are researching. And, and so, you know, the idea that beauty queens are dupes or that beauty queens, you know, are in this false consciousness situation and that they, they want to be exploited or they don't know they're being exploited. That's not my interest here. But what I was interested in, 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 and what was also coming in terms of the, the research when I was doing the, the research for this book is I was interested in how, you know who protested were people were there people who protested the beauty beauty contests and so you know when I uh, came across in the archives these you know the this kind of um, reference as the you know the quote that you read it really helped me uh, 
you know, to open up this particular aspect of the book, because it wasn't just, uh, you know, conservative moral reformers who were interested in protesting women's, um, uh, the excuse me, beauty contest, but it was also women uh, from the left. It was also uh, women who were anarchists. It was also beauty contest beauty queens themselves protested beauty contests. Um, and so, you know, and, and we often think it's, oh, it's the feminists from the 1970s who were protesting, but actually found evidence as, as like you say, from the very beginning. So in terms of, of the quote that you just read, really what the, for, for, for conservatives, I'm going to use the word conservative, conservative women reformers, women reformers who were, you know, out of the tradition of the national, um, Council of Women or the, out of the tradition of the Women's Temperance Union um, in, you know, the 30s and 40s, what they were interested in um, is the fact that beauty contests were morally abhorrent or they, they didn't uphold the idea of women as the, the moral or healthy uh, exemplars of the nation. Um, they saw beauty contests as degrading, as um, uh, not good for the idea of the, you know, the, the moral aptitude of, of women. Interestingly, there's no evidence I found, uh, Greg, in my research of them, you know, thinking that the, the women themselves were morally vapid but they thought the institution or the practice of having a beauty contest was the the problem of morality, right? So the the moral problem was the beauty contest itself. Uh, I I didn't find any evidence of them attacking or feeling like the women who participated in in these these beauty contests were morally, uh, you know, vapid or or problematic. Um, the same thing with 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 um, the women from uh, on the left from the same period. They saw these beauty contests not necessarily from a moral lens, which would come more from the conservative um, sort of aspect of, of women reform, but with women, socialist women and women from the left, what they believed was that beauty contests were problematic because it was the, you know, capitalism once again um, exploiting the bodies of women and commodifying them for their greedy interests. By the time we get, you know, by the t I did want to uh, have take this opportunity, Greg, to to talk about also protests that were happening, um, especially the more famous one um, of the protests of a group of ten lesbians who protested um, Miss Canada 1976 contest, where they literally stormed the stage on TV, where uh, the you know the, during the production it had to be blacked out on the TV <laughs> on TV, and you could hear screams. Um, and you could hear the 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 protesters um, saying to the beauty con beauty uh, uh, contestants, you know, uh, don't don't let don't let them scapegoat you, don't let you, them you know um, fight against this, you know, be feminists. Um, and so this whole story of beauty contests, it's not just the controversies and the scandals of who was sleeping with who and all this other part of the contest itself, but. But there's also this entire, uh, this other controversy, if you, if you will, or tension within uh, the politics of, of feminism. Uh, beauty contestants themselves protest, but but it, of course, took on a different character. So, right now, here we are. Uh, it's 2021. Beauty contests seem a pretty antiquated institution. 
in today's eyes, yet they persist, they endure. Why is that? Well, I, 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 I'm, I have to say that I actually don't think that beauty contests are antiquated. Um, <laughs> I think uh, what's, I mean, maybe the Miss Canada pageant uh, as, a, as a title or as a contest uh, is now seen as antiquated, but beauty contests themselves are not. Uh, in fact, they, they uh, blossom. They can, uh, I should say they continue to flourish. That's what I'm, I really want to say is that they're flourishing, that they are still ubiquitous that they um, continue to uh, draw a, a massive market um, in, in terms of people consuming a beauty contest. Um, you know, they, we may not have uh, the kind of institutionalization of beauty contests that we, in, in this heyday, which is basically the 60s and 70s, uh, in terms of our country, um, but they're not antiquated. The, the, the proliferation of, of, again, children's beauty contests all over North America uh, is really continues in, 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 with incredible uh, frequency. There's beauty contests that are used, the beauty contest model is used in the, the queer and trans communities uh, on a regular basis. In terms of beauty contests in, on the global stage, they are uh, very, it's a healthy use of the beauty contest model to represent all sorts of issues, um, in, you know, uh, from, from Miss HIV to Miss plastic, uh, Miss, Miss plastic Surgery and so on and so forth. So while we, don't, we may not have, in terms of the North American context, or maybe even in terms of the European context, uh, the institutionalization of, of beauty contests don't have the same kind of value Again, because of some of the successes of the protesting of beauty contests uh, from from feminists or, or women reformers, um, really they they are not antiquated because they they still have, you know, they still have the spectator entertainment value to them, and they are still very important vehicles for the kind of representation, even if they're not now solely about the representation of the nation. So I, I would actually suggest to you that they're not antiquated at all. Wow. Pat, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Greg. My guest today was Patrizia Gentile. She is the author of Queen of the Maple Leaf, Beauty Contests and Settler Femininity, published by UBC Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and to help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society We also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on January 22nd, 2021, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.